The Hub is a community. Manuscript, book, and print cultures. Stamping problems. You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. The Hub is a space celebrating tenure through the community. The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. Okay, I think we're ready to go. Uh, you're very welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to this, uh, the last seminar in our current series uh, in contemporary Irish history. Our speaker today is Dr. Paul Corthorne, Queen's University. Um, he's speaking about a topic on which his, uh, his work has been hi already highly recognised because in 2019, he produced uh, a volume with Oxford University Press on Enoch Powell, Politics and Ideas in Modern Britain. Uh, I have a copy and I've managed uh, to mislay it. And despite all the, the lockdown time, uh, the last two weeks, I can't find it, but it's definitely in the house somewhere. So sorry, Paul, I couldn't flash it at the screen. Um, Paul, Paul is, in fact, to some extent, a historian of the left. And one of the things he might answer afterwards is, is uh, does this mean Enoch Powell belongs to the left or is it just, just happen chance that it, it is of Powell that he speaks? Thank you, Paul. Thank you, Yunan, and hello, everybody. Just give me a moment here. I will share the PowerPoint. The British Conservative and then Ulster Unionist politician Enoch Powell reveled in challenging accepted orthodoxies. He frequently provoked controversy and helped to establish a future agenda. Powell is best known for his outspoken opposition to immigration, which shattered a tacit agreement between the political parties not to inflame popular opinion on the issue. Speaking in 1968, the former classical scholar alluded to the poet Virgil to make a prediction of racial violence, like the Roman I seem to see the river Tiber foaming with much blood. Powell also adopted distinctive positions on a range of other prominent issues in the post-1945 era. Once a committed imperialist, Powell later called on the UK to adopt a more tightly defined international role. In doing so, amid Cold War international tensions, he rejected the twin pillars of British policy, alliance with the United States and an independent nuclear deterrent. He even came to advocate an alliance with the Soviet Union. Despite his deep suspicion of US ambitions, Powell emerged as an early proponent of free market economics, prefiguring some of the policy changes introduced by Margaret Thatcher's government, governments in the 1980s. As the UK sought membership of the European community, Powell strongly opposed the move. He emphasized the threat to British sovereignty, an argument that has resonated in British politics and public life from the 1990s, and of course, played a prominent part in recent debates over Brexit. Yet, Powell's views on Europe have appeared to endure. His stance on Northern Ireland has weathered less well. A fierce opponent of devolution in Scotland and Wales, 
Powell argued, against a backdrop of the troubles for the closer integration of Northern Ireland with Great Britain. This view certainly put Powell out of line with a large part of Ulster Unionist opinion, which strove to regain local legislative control. This view is also notably at odds with the eventually successful British government strategy, seeking a power sharing arrangement between the local parties and increasingly envisaging the Republic of Ireland playing an important role in the resolution of the conflict. But this does not, I think, detract from the significance of his participation in the debate over the future of Northern Ireland. And this is what I want to explore today. As a historian of 20th century Britain, I had long been fascinated by Powell as a widely read intellectual figure who was also a populist politician. But it was not until after I moved to Belfast to take up a lectureship at Queen's University that I began to research Powell myself. I knew that far less had been written about Powell as an Ulster Unionist between 1974 and 1987 than about his involvement in British politics. And as I familiarized myself with local archives, I began to find plenty of underexplored material. This notably included pamphlets in the Linen Hall Library in its Northern Ireland political collection that allowed me to understand who Powell was arguing against and who chose to take on his arguments. It also included material in the Public Record Office of Northern Ireland, Prony, most notably a full run of every speech Powell gave in Northern Ireland. These are now available online, but that wasn't the case in 2009. I initially planned to write a single article about Powell, but found myself drawn in. I decided to write a book about him, which was published in 2019. In the book, I look thematically at Powell's position on certain issues, international relations, economics, immigration, Europe, and Northern Ireland. In each case, I try to give a sense of the development of Powell's ideas, and how he chose to deploy them in particular political contexts. I'll attempt to give you a sense of that today. My talk has four parts. First, I want to look at interpretations of Powell, giving a little background as I do on Powell's political career. Then I want to discuss Powell's evolving interpretation of the British nation. Third, I'll examine Powell's policy of integration in Northern Ireland, including his discussion of the Republic of Ireland. In the final section, I want to place Powell in the context of Ulster Unionist politics. So to look then at interpretations of Powell. Powell spent just 15 months in the British cabinet in the early 1960s, but he was, from later on in that decade, one of the best known politicians in the UK. As Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher later put it, Powell without doubt commanded influence without power. Born in Birmingham in 1912, Powell initially had a successful academic career. This saw him become professor of Greek at the University of Sydney at the age of 25. Powell then served in the British Army during the Second World War, becoming a brig brigadier in military intelligence. 
joining Conservative Central Office in 1946. He won the seat of Birmingham Southwest in 1950. Howe first held government office at the Ministry of Housing in 1955 and became financial secretary to the Treasury in 1957, resigning the following year when calls for reductions in public expenditure were dismissed by the cabinet. As Minister for Health between 1960 and 1963, Powell joined the cabinet in July of 1962, but left the following year after refusing to serve under new leader Sir Alec Douglas Hume. Powell entered the Conservative Party leadership contest in 1965, but came in last place. Powell was shadow defence minister from 1965, but he was sacked by party leader Edward Heath after making his so-called rivers of blood speech in Birmingham in April 1968. With the Conservatives back in government after 1970, Powell's relations with the leadership deteriorated. Deeply opposed to party policy in favour of membership of the European community, which became a reality in 1973, Powell decided not to stand in the February 1974 general election. Dramatically, Powell, at this juncture, asked his supporters to vote for the Labour Party, which was committed to renegotiating the terms of UK membership and then putting these to a test of public opinion in a referendum. Powell had taken an active interest in Northern Ireland since 1968, making regular visits. But in 1974, he made an unusual move for a British politician, choosing to contest a seat in Northern Ireland, South Down, for the Ulster Unionist Party, the UUP, in the October general election. He held this until defeated in 1987. Powell himself died in 1998. Now, a great deal has been written about Powell, but a lot of it focuses on immigration. After making his speech in Birmingham, Powell was labelled racist or racialist in the language of the day by a range of opinion. He also had substantial public support. Only two national newspapers supported Powell, the Daily Express and the News of the World, but these had a combined circulation of over 10 million. Overall, though, the assessment was critical. The year after the speech, the radical left-wing journalist Paul Foote published a book accusing Powell of coming late to the immigration debate and opportunistically exploiting racist sentiment only after coming to appreciate its potential electoral value. In the 1970s and 1980s, a succession of social scientists increasingly associated with the Center for Cultural, Contemporary Cultural Studies at Birmingham University gave academic credibility to charges of racism amid what they interpreted as a post-colonial crisis facing Britain. They took issue with Powell's encoded interpretation of race in absolute terms and his equation of whiteness with Britishness. More recently, historians have examined, Powell, have examined how Powell stimulated unspoken memories of the racially ordered colonial past. They've considered Powell as part of a political generation 
shaped by the Second World War, whose reference points, including the danger of invasion, were, were applied to the post-colonial context. Since the late 1960s, however, these views have been consistently challenged by a series of more sympathetic power biographers who have contended that their subject was not crudely racist. There has also been a move in recent years to consider Powell's interests more widely. This development has been particularly pronounced in the case of Europe, which has relatively recently and after Powell's lifetime become intertwined with immigration. Earlier waves of immigration into Britain came from the West Indies and then India and Pakistan, but this changed in the new millennium. The 2004 EU enlargement included, among others, the Czech Republic, Hungary, Lithuania, Poland, with the government not restricting immigration from these states in the first five years of membership. By 2013, EU citizens formed the largest group of UK immigrants. This was the backdrop against which the Leave campaign's main slogan in the 2016 referendum, to take back control, usually in effect, referred to control of the UK's borders. We now appreciate how Powell's campaigns on both immigration and Europe can be understood as populist in a classic sense, suggesting that the people were being misrepresented, perhaps even misled, by government and party elites. This has been matched by a growing public awareness that Powell broadly outlined some of the arguments that have underpinned Brexit. An article in the Financial Times at the end of 2017 was probably exaggerating when it made the case that Powell is the politician who dominates our age as no other does. But arguably, it had a point when it went on to state that the age of Brexit is the age of Powell. Let me now turn to Powell's understanding of the British nation. In 1952, in private discussion, Powell argued that an understanding of Toryism, his preferred self-description, must involve a view of the state, nation, and of this nation in particular. In the years ahead, Powell expanded on this central point, changing the geographical boundaries of the British nation as he went along. Powell was once a committed imperialist. As he served in military intelligence during the Second World War, he began to attach particular importance to India, where he was based from 1943. Working for conservative central office after the war, Powell was distressed as the Labour government granted Indian independence in 1947. Powell was even more horrified because the Conservative Party eventually agreed to it, even though without agreement between the main Indian parties, it involved the partition of British India into India and Pakistan. Despite the loss of India, as Powell saw it, as he contested the 1950 general election, he argued for greater imperial unity he was thinking in economic defense and foreign policy. Powell spoke of a common sovereignty across the British Empire and suggested that, in its wider sense, 
The nation is the empire. Here, Powell echoed late 19th century advocates of a greater Britain who sought to create a global imperial nation. But before long, Powell was telling his fellow members of the One Nation Group, a conservative backbench club formed by MPs who had first been elected in February 1950, that the 19th century empire was overblown. And he argued that it was necessary to consider what features of it remain essential. The conservatives had become strongly identified with the empire in the 19th century and into the 1950s, many conservatives still considered the empire would help Britain to compete with the United States. Against this backdrop, Powell argued in 1952 that he sought to end the long period of conservative smugness about the empire. He further contended that the Commonwealth, formally constituted in 1949 as an association of free and equal former members of the empire, was a sham or a pretense. How to soon took his position further. In 1954, he contended that the empire's disintegration was frankly inevitable. This was, Powell argued, both because of the increasing independence of the dominions, including Australia, New Zealand, and Canada, but also, he added, a result of the existence within the empire of large populations unconnected with the United Kingdom by tradition or color. Significantly, in 1961, with considerable decolonization having taken place, Powell argued that the nationhood of the mother country remained unaltered through it all. He now contended that an acceptance of and an allegiance to the crown in parliament characterized, as he put it, the unbroken life of the English nation over a thousand years. Powell's views were not that distinctive. His attachment to parliamentary institutions made him part of a broad conservative tradition, often seen as dating back to Edmund Burke in the 18th century. Moreover, from the mid 19th century to about the 1950s, it was common to define the English nation in terms of the constitutional development of the crown in parliament. Unlike most others, Powell did, however, periodically devote time from the late 1940s through to the late 1960s to writing part of that history himself in terms of the four, in terms of an account of the history of the House of Lords in the Middle Ages. Powell was also very far from unique, especially among the English, in conflating England and Britain. Yet, from the mid-1960s, Powell started to talk more routinely about the British nation defined by the geographical boundaries of the United Kingdom. At the Conservative Party conference in 1965, as, as shadow defence minister, he asked, what do we mean by the nation? He answered, we mean the United Kingdom. Powell's tendency to speak about the British nation was cemented from the late 1960s amid the rise of Scottish and to a lesser extent Welsh nationalism that in Powell's view threatened the unity of the realm. Unionism in Powell's reasoning was therefore the claim to be part of a whole, the British nation. 
Powell held an institutional interpretation in which the British, na British nation had developed from the English one. In his view, this had happened as the English Parliament incorporated Wales, Scotland and Ireland. This meant that both the Scottish Parliament and the Irish Parliament had ceased to exist in 1707 and 1800 at the point of the two acts of union. Powell considered that the British nation was a unitary state with all power, parliamentary sovereignty flowing from the center. In the early 1970s, this was still a widely held opinion, but it was soon to be increasingly challenged. Nevertheless, Powell applied this viewpoint ferociously in the debate over Northern Ireland. And this is what I'll now consider. Powell announced his firm opposition to devolution in Scotland and Wales in 1968. Against the backdrop of the deepening troubles, Powell outlined his policy of integration for Northern Ireland in 1970. His first hint that he did not agree with the existence of the Northern Ireland Parliament came in a speech given in February in Enniskillen. At a time when the most prominent opposition to Stormont's continuation came from Republican circles, Powell stated that the Stormont Parliament itself, though rendered familiar and habitual by the use of nearly 50 years, is the fragment of a structure of which the remainder never came into existence. This was a reference to the fact that in 1920, the British government had sought to establish two Home Rule Parliaments in Ireland. Powell's conclusions were guarded, but in a BBC interview the same day, he was more explicit. He argued that, that the Ulster Unionist assertion of oneness with the rest of the United Kingdom was, as he put it, at odds with their assertion of this parliamentary independence. This was a provocative argument to make. Although Ulster Unionism had emerged in order to resist Home Rule, after the creation of Northern Ireland in 1921, it became deeply committed to the maintenance of the Stormont Parliament. Nevertheless, it was, in one sense, a return to the agenda of late 19th and early 20th century unionists, most notably the academic jurist A.B. Dicey. Dicey contended that Irish Home Rule would undermine the fundamental principle of the British Constitution, the overriding sovereignty of the Crown in Parliament. Powell's argument also related directly to the Troubles, as he attributed to Stormont some responsibility for sustaining the tensions by giving the impression that Northern Ireland was separate from the rest of the United Kingdom. At the same time, Powell linked his argument to immigration and to the Republic of Ireland. Powell sought to draw a clearer line between the Republic of Ireland and Northern Ireland as part of the United Kingdom. He voiced objections to the fact that citizens of the Republic, if they lived in Britain, were given the right to vote and otherwise treated as British citizens. Powell, Powell held that this arose from a mistaken assumption that not just the Irish Free State itself a dominion, but then the independent Republic of Ireland after 1949 was still within the allegiance as part of the British Commonwealth. Powell argued that its practical effect was that the belonging of Northern Ireland 
and the not belonging of the Republic are at present obscured. Speaking in 1949 as the prospective Conservative candidate in Wolverhampton Southwest, Powell had argued, we must reduce or remove the barriers to free movement within the empire of goods, of money, and above all, of human beings. But having come to see the end of empire as inevitable by the end of 1954, Powell soon took a very different line. The following year, he privately entered the debate over Commonwealth immigration. He now argued for the replacement of the British Nationality Act of 1948 that had created a common UK and Commonwealth citizenship, calling for a tighter definition of British nationality. Because the 1948 legislation had recognized the right of Commonwealth citizens to work and live in the UK, Powell's view, as he put it in 1965, was that immigration was an accident, one that had come about through legislation that was itself, as he put it, one of the last relics of empire. The historian David Shields has shown how Powell had, until 1969, been comfortable or unwilling to raise the issue of Irish immigration into Britain. But he now raised the point time and time again to audiences in Northern Ireland. There was some interest in integration after the suspension of Stormont in 1972. It was abolished the following year. But on the whole, arguments for integration did not publicly gain much ground. Indeed, even Powell's advocacy of it was muted as he claimed during his first campaign in South Down in October 1974 to endorse the agreed unionist policy of majority rule devolution within a future federal United Kingdom. With Welsh and Scottish devolution also being debated, this was effectively devolution all around. To Northern Ireland audiences, Powell continued to toe the unionist line but speaking at Westminster, expressed his real view. This was, the nature of the House of Commons is that its sovereignty reaches into every nook and cranny of national life. There are no powers which it will concede within this realm to any other authority. Understandably, this brought a rebuke from Harry West, the UUP leader. It also caused upset in Powell's South Down constituency party. Powell's position was awkward. And as a result, Powell, who became close to James Molyneux, the UUP leader at Westminster, focused on promoting two policies that were consistent with integration. These were increased parliamentary representation at Westminster in the absence of a devolved local parliament and expanded local government whose functions have recently been restricted partly so as to remove controversial areas, such as the allocation of public housing from its control. Powell was successful in securing the principle of increased representation of Northern Ireland at Westminster in 1978. Over time, closer contacts were also established between the UUP and the Conservative Party, with the Conservative Northern Ireland Committee set up after the suspension of Stormont 
and containing individuals amenable to integration, most notably Airy Neve, but also Julian Ingwe and John Biggs Davison playing a prominent role. They coalesced in support for the establishment of regional councils with wide ranging powers over local services. These were often presented pragmatically by the UUP as what can be achieved now. Yet, after the Conservatives returned to power in 1979, and with Neve murdered by the Irish National Liberation Army, the military wing of the Irish Republican Socialist Party, the government abandoned the regional council scheme. Seeking devolution, it tried to establish a conference involving the, the Northern Ireland political parties, with the UUP standing aside from the talks and theoretically still committed to regional councils. The party was now visit, more visibly divided between those backing devolution and those supporting integration. To some extent, this remained the case for the rest of the 1980s. Let me now place Powell's arguments in political context. In the first place, Powell's views represented a challenge the calls for independence for Northern Ireland that had emerged out of the fractious politics of the UUP, with William Bill Craig playing the prominent role. Craig had in fact begun to call for greater autonomy for Northern Ireland from Britain in 1968. From 1972, advocacy of greater independence for Ulster was intertwined with the emergence emergence of the Ulster Vanguard movement, a pressure group within the UUP. Set up before the suspension of Stormont, its constitution spoke of bolstering the Parliament of Northern Ireland. Yet Craig soon went further, arguing that if it was not possible to remain in the UK, he then favoured some form of friendly Dominion status under the Crown. The Dominion status argument had some pedigree. In the years after 1945, in the context of decolonization, it had underpinned calls for greater fiscal independence. Now, Kennedy Lindsay emerged as one of Craig's closest advisors, advocating independence in the form of Dominion status. Born in Canada, but brought up in Northern Ireland, Lindsay was a historian who had most recently been associated with the Institute of Commonwealth Studies the University of London. Powell was emphatic in his response. He argued that independence would have meant turning unionism into that denial of itself, isolationism. Powell directly refuted the implications of the vanguard publication, Ulster, a nation. Powell did not accept there was any such thing as an Ulster nationality or Ulster nationalism. He accepted that within the British nation, there was an Ulster dimension, but he saw this like other regional dimensions in the UK. It should be said that the question of whether Ulster unionism was itself a form of nationalism continues to preoccupy historians. Powell's views were also a significant challenge to the deeply held Ulster unionist commitment to, to majority rule devolution. Until 1972, it is fair to say that this characterized Ulster Unionism as a whole. 
even as the troubles unfolded. This was the line taken by the Ulster Unionist government, Stormont. In 1971, Brian Faulkner, the last Northern Ireland Prime Minister, argued that the meaning, however hard, of democracy was that the will of the majority must decide fundamental issues. It was also the view of those unionists who criticized the government for being too willing to bow to pressure from London for reform. Ian Paisley, the founder of the Free Presbyterian Church and the Democratic Unionist Party, the DUP, made a particular call for Stormont to regain control over security. This had been lost with the deployment of the British Army. After Stormont's suspension, both the Orange Order and the UUP called for its restoration. Amid the volatile politics that followed, the advocacy of majority rule devolution passed to the United Ulster Unionist Council, the Triple UC. This was an electoral coalition comprising the UUP, the DUP, and what had become the Vanguard Unionist Progressive Party. It was set up in early 1974 in order to oppose the Sunningdale Agreement that envisaged a power-sharing Northern Ireland executive and a cross-border Council of Ireland. The Triple UC case for devolution was increasingly underpinned by a criticism of British political parties with claims that they only acted in their own party interests. In one sense, this argument was built on Irish Protestant fears dating back to the early modern period of English treachery, which had become pronounced during the debates over home rule as the very dependence on Britain was made clear. The argument also, however, chimed with a contemporary growing public and media dissatisfaction with the British political system and its institutions, especially political parties, and one that was characterized by a deep skepticism of politicians' motives. This had begun to develop in the 1950s and it gathered pace in the 1970s and 1980s. By the end of the decade, with the collapse of the Triple UC in 1977, and the UUP divided in practice between integrationist and devolutionist wings, the DUP positioned itself as the unambiguously pro-devolution party, continuing to call for majority rule. This was accompanied by a growing feud between Powell and Paisley, which in 1979 had involved speculation that the DUP would challenge Powell in South Wales. Against this backdrop, Powell developed the case behind his call for integration, and in doing so, challenged the arguments underpinning some of the calls for devolution. Countering the suggestion that a power-sharing local assembly was needed in order to protect the interests of the nationalist minority in Northern Ireland, Powell contended, Powell, Parliament is the natural protector of all minorities because it is itself made up of minorities. This was because, both politically and geographically, the consciousness that they are all minorities prevents them from coercing or trampling upon one another beyond a certain point. Devolution in any form, the old Stormont regime, as well as a power-sharing model, 
would only, in Powell's view, override the safeguards. Powell argued, if Ulster is endowed with the attributes of a separate state, all the proportions are changed. Differences which, diluted within the union as a whole, were harmless and tolerated, become critically important. This was, in an important sense, a rebuttal of the pervasive view that party interests dominated Westminster in a negative way. Yet it also led Powell to confront what he called the biggest and most significant difference between the province and the rest of the United Kingdom, the differing party political structure. Making it clear how this related to local political minorities, Powell argued, when in the county of Durham, the conservative minority contemplates the fact that it is unlikely to return a majority of members to this house or vice versa in Hampshire, it feels no estrangement as a result. Because it identifies with the cause of the Labour Party or the Conservative Party, as the case may be, throughout the nation. Even so, Powell did not publicly endorse electoral integration, British political parties organising in Northern Ireland. He did later privately acknowledge, however, that in principle he supported it. In fact, when there was a significant call for electoral integration, it involved an important challenge to Powell's thinking. After the 1985 Anglo-Irish Agreement, the UUP politician Robert McCartney, who had previously supported devolution, argued that British citizens in Northern Ireland are denied the most basic political right of being able, if they choose, to vote for a party which might conceivably form the government of the country of which they are alleged to be equal citizens. McCartney soon became president of the recently formed Campaign for Equal Citizenship. McCartney's argument was underpinned by the view that, as he put it, the essence of the union was the sharing of mutual, cultural, historic, religious and political values between Northern Ireland and the rest of the United Kingdom. It was one of the campaign supporters, however, the pro-unionist Ulster University politics and academic Arthur Ochi, who spelled out the challenge to Powell's arguments. Responding to Irish nationalism as well, Ochi argued that for unionists, the question is not about nationality, it is about the state. He continued, unionism is concerned primarily with the quality of citizenship within the union. It is nationalists who are agitated by ideas of nationhood and its extent. There is no British nation. There are only British citizens. Let me bring things to a close. Powell's deep involvement in Northern Irish politics over the better part of 20 years was highly unusual for a British politician. Yet in articulating his Ulster unionism during this time, he also gave one of the fullest expositions of his understanding of the British nation. With his emphasis on the primacy of Westminster, his unionism can be viewed anachronistically in terms of a late 19th, early 20th century agenda. Powell also advanced the argument 
tentatively endorsing electoral integration, he made a case for the importance of political parties as a pivotal part of the parliamentary system and the central political means by which the electorate identified with the nation. Powell preempted by several years the burst of interest in British political party organization in Northern Ireland in the mid and late 1980s. But the irony was that by the time it came, it posed a challenge to Powell's fundamental belief, the existence of the British nation. The hub is a community. Manuscript, book, and print cultures, stamping provenance towards the history of the time of the year library. As well as being heard. The hub is a space. Contemplating Ireland through the communities created by Coral The hub is about impact. The hub is for everyone. Here's to the next 10 years.